Mark chapter 1. We'll be expositing verses 14 and 15. Please join with me in prayer once again. Father, I come before thee weak, beggarly, and hopeful, confident, assured of thy grace and thy love towards myself and these thy people. Lord, please help. Please help thou us by thy Spirit. May our hearts be soft, our ears open. Our hearts warmed and ready to be filled by thy truth, by thy presence. Holy Spirit, lead this preaching from my mouth to our hearts. Apply it, O God. Lord, we come unto thee and thee alone. We bow before thy Son. And his majesty, his glory, his splendor, which he now possesses. God, now as we look at the gospel of Mark, thy word, O Lord, and see Jesus as a man, help us to see our all in all, our great physician, our great shepherd the door of eternal life. And even as Christians, to come to him willing, eager, ready. And Lord, this grace can only come from thee. Only from thy hand, O God. Grant us joy, solemnity, repentance, and faith. We pray these things in the name of thy Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Dear congregation, we are continuing our exposition through Mark's Gospel. We looked last week at verses 1 through 13, the baptism of Jesus Christ, the person and the ministry of John the Baptist as he came as a herald before Jesus. To prepare the way, the scriptures say. To make his paths straight. And we learned much about our own duty as Christians. Our own duty as preachers. For we are all preachers of the gospel. We are all ministers of God. As his children. As his ambassadors. We learned that we must step out of the way. We must decrease. So that Christ may increase. We saw Christ in a baptism unlike anyone else's. The heavens torn asunder. The Spirit, the Holy Spirit of God descending upon him in the form of a dove. Resting upon him, anointing his ministry. And God's voice owning his Son as his well-beloved. In whom he is well-pleased, upon whom his favor rests. His only begotten Son that he gave to us. And in, such, in so doing, he demonstrated his great love for us. That while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Christ came for us. And now he reigns in glory for us, interceding on our behalf. What a joy it is to go week by week through the scriptures. And what better than a gospel? Jesus, Jesus, Jesus every week. And that, thus it should be from every passage of scripture. We saw in Jonah, Dr. Robert Hawker, 1800s commentator, Spurgeon, highly esteemed him. He was somewhat of a high Calvinist, and he had, was both a gift and a deficiency of seeing Christ where he was not in the Old Testament. And Spurgeon said, better to put Christ where he is not than to not see him at all where he is. But in this gospel before us, we have Christ placarded before us, placed before us, 
And the Holy Spirit beckoning us in to His Son. But now we come to a very important passage. A passage that sets the tone for the Gospel of Mark. The tone for Christ's ministry. Let us read Mark chapter 1, verses 14 and 15. Jesus had just been baptized, driven into the wilderness, tempted of Satan, overcoming. Verse 14. Now after that John was put in prison, Jesus came into Galilee, preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God, and saying, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent ye, and believe the gospel. Let's look at three topics in our text. First, that John the Baptist's ministry was temporary. It was temporary. Secondly, Jesus and the kingdom of God. Thirdly, repentance and faith. Those are the three topics we'll see in our text this afternoon. John's ministry being temporary, Jesus and the kingdom of God, and repentance and faith. First, John's ministry was temporary. This comes to us right here, verse 14a. Now, after that, John was put in prison. He was put in prison. John's was never to be a permanent ministry. He was never to be a permanent mediator. And he was fully removed from it, we see here. He was put into prison, the text says. And this was for the best. This was for the best of the people of Israel and for us. His ministry, John the Baptist's ministry, was so effectual, it seems, that he had had he remained in the wilderness preaching and baptizing, people would have continued to go out to him rather than to Jesus, to whom he was pointing. It's one possibility. John's love for Christ, as we saw, was such that it could not be contained. He could not keep his mouth from further and further proclaimings of Christ Jesus, his person, his glories, and his work. And thus, he may have served as a distraction rather than an encouragement to go to Jesus. John the Baptist was like the prophet Jeremiah, and he could say that God's word was in mine heart As a burning fire shut up in my bones. Jeremiah 20 verse 9. Just like the prophet Jeremiah. And just like any gospel minister who has had that coal put upon his lips and his heart from the altar of God. He could not contain it in his bones. He had to give it vent. Through proclamation. Hence we can learn that John's ministry first was temporary and preparatory. We see that in verses Or in verse 2 of the same chapter. As it is written in the prophets, Behold, I send my messenger before thy face, which shall prepare the way for thee. John loved nothing more than to proclaim Christ. But his ministry was simply to prepare the way for Christ. He loved nothing more than to see himself decrease and Christ increase. Indeed, it was his joy to be taken out of the way, placed in prison, once Christ was come. Just as the Apostle Paul, when the Apostle Paul was in prison for preaching the gospel, for preaching Christ, he also considered it his joy to suffer. For Paul knew that his suffering was for the furtherance of the gospel, Philippians 1.12. John simply gathered disciples unto himself for one reason. What reason? So that he might then send them after Jesus. We see this in John chapter 1 verses 35 through 37. It says, Again the next day after John stood and two of his disciples with him. And looking upon Jesus as he walked, he saith, Behold the Lamb of God. And the two disciples heard him speak. And they followed after Jesus. He then follow after them and say, Wait, 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 hold on. Like I know I want you to really listen to Jesus, but don't leave me. No, he was the one pointing. Behold the Lamb of God. Go after him. That was the only reason he gathered disciples unto himself. John merely pointed to Christ. 
And like the Apostle Paul, in his preaching, he was mindful to do nothing else than preach Jesus Christ and Him crucified, 1 Corinthians 2.2. Hence, John the Baptist's ministry was also, secondly, Christ-centered. It was Christ-centered. Now, there's much talk in evangelicalism about discipleship or making disciples. And much of this talk and much of the methods advocated for discipleship are vapid and useless. But true discipleship is a good and wonderful thing. It's something we are called to do. We are called to make disciples. Jesus tells us that after we win souls to Christ, after we preach the gospel and they are brought to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, we are then to labor at teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. Matthew 28, verse 20. But discipleship is meant to be carried out, not in a coffee shop and you never see each other outside the coffee shop and you're not in a church. Rather, discipleship is meant to be carried out in the context of the local church. In the context of a local church, wherein converts are connected to the local body. They're connected to the local body in fellowship and they get to sit under the ministrations of the gospel on the Lord's Day. The preaching of the word, prayers, singing of psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, and the observance of the Lord's Supper. So, Dear Christian, if you are blessed of God to be able to be used of Him and you get to play a part in bringing someone to Christ or you get to water a freshly sprout plant in the kingdom of God, somebody who just got saved, be sure to exhort them to join a local church. It doesn't have to be this one. Just make sure you point them to a biblical, gospel-centered, Christ-centered church. It's imperative that we get disciples into church and part of discipleship making is making people who love the body of Christ, who sit under the ministrations of the gospel, and not merely rogues, wolves out there doing their own thing. Notice that our discipleship and our gospel preaching is not to be centered on us. So if you want to do good gospel preaching, you want to do good discipleship, it cannot be centered on you. It cannot be centered on your opinions. It cannot be centered on the teachings of any one denomination or church even. You're not here to make disciples for Agros Reformed Baptist Church or whatever other church you belong to. You are here on this planet to make disciples for Jesus Christ. To follow after his teachings, his ways. We must then obey the words of Christ. We must teach new converts to observe all things whatsoever Jesus has commanded us. And in doing this, we will be like John the Baptist. We will be like John the Baptist. And indeed, we'll be like all the prophets, all of the apostles, and all of the scriptures who pointed away from themselves and to Jesus. We must then, therefore, be mindful not to put ourselves forward in any way, not to put a celebrity forward, not to put a personality forward. Then you make followers of yourself rather than followers of of Christ. We must be mindful to put Christ forward in order to decrease ourselves and increase Jesus Christ. Put only Jesus Christ before new converts, and indeed before old converts. For if they are truly Christ, then when you place Jesus before them, they will follow him. It's as simple as that. You don't have to make a disciple. Literally, you can't. How that discipleship making happens, how disciple making happens, how discipleship works, is you put Christ before people. And you put Christ before one another. That's how it works. Because his sheep hear his voice and they follow him. It's as simple as that. They'll follow after Jesus if you put him before them. Why? Because he is their love, their joy, and their peace. We must labor with Christians, Paul says, even as a mother travails in childbirth until Christ be formed in ye, he says in Galatians 4.19. And then afterwards, after we see someone come to Christ after we've labored with them, we then have to continue to labor with people, labor with one another. As a mother does while nursing her child, Paul said this in 1 Thessalonians 2.7. Feeding them with the pure milk of the word. 1 Peter 2.2 2. 
And this, if you've ever done it, if you've ever been used of God to either bring someone to Christ, disciple someone, work with someone in the church, have real, true unity, community, fellowship, you know you hit hard times. You know that it gets difficult. Personalities clash. Anger takes place. Sparks fly. That's part of it. We're all sinners. However, that labor, and it is a labor, is a labor of love and of joy. And it's full of glory because it is made effectual by the Spirit of God. Second point this afternoon. Jesus and the kingdom of God. This is seen in verse 14b. So it said, now after that John was put in prison, Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God. This is our next topic. Jesus is preaching of the gospel of the kingdom of God. Our text says that he preached this gospel. After John had finished his preaching, Jesus began his. Jesus began his. John was taken out of the land so that Jesus could fill it with his teaching, his preaching, his works. It is always better, dear church, to have Jesus as your preacher rather than any other minister. And Jesus is present wherever his name is remembered, Exodus 20, 24. And where is that? Where are the places where his name is remembered? I'll tell you where. Namely, wherever Jesus Christ's person and Jesus Christ's work are fully and faithfully proclaimed to a gathering of people, that's where his name is remembered, and that is where Jesus preaches. Wherever the ordinances of the Wherever the ordinances of the gospel, the means of grace, are faithfully and constantly put forward and observed, that is where Jesus preaches. So find Jesus in the preaching. Jesus preaches wherever the minister faithfully preaches his truths, namely the gospel of the kingdom of God. If it lines up with that, God is speaking, and you should listen. Notice also this. First, Jesus preached the gospel. Jesus preached the gospel. The gospel? Jesus preached it? What did he preach? Himself. He preached himself. How? Because he is the way, the truth, and the life. John 14, 6. He is the door which the sheep enter through. Any man that enters in through him shall be saved. John ten nine. He has the words of eternal life. John six sixty eight, And Jesus is the one who gives eternal life unto all who cometh unto him. And they shall in no wise be cast out, but rather shall be raised up at that last day. John six thirty seven and 39. Jesus preached himself. And that's why we have to preach Jesus. Because then Jesus will be amongst us and in our preaching and through our preaching. Now this also teaches us this, dear church. Let us make short work, quick work of coming to Jesus ourselves. Of coming to Jesus ourselves. Make quick work of it. Do not hesitate. Do not waver between two positions. Even as believers, let us come to Jesus again and again. Drinking from that well that never runs dry. Never. Never runs dry. It's a well that springs up to eternal life. As the closing words of the New Testament say in Revelation twenty-two, seventeen, And the Spirit and the bride say, Come. And let him that heareth say, Come. And let him that is a thirst come. And whosoever will, let him take the water of life freely. Now, what's interesting about that passage who is that being said to? The glorified saints in New Jerusalem, in the new heavens and the new earth. They're being told to come and feast on Christ. Right? Notice that it's said to them. They are beckoned to come and drink from the river of life afresh, time and time and time again, whenever they thirst. Now this teaches us that true believers whether they're glorified or they're still on their pilgrimage to heaven, continually thirst for Christ. We continually thirst for Christ on our pilgrimage and even when we're glorified in heaven. It doesn't end there. We still want Jesus. 
We still want to pursue him. We still need to pursue him. We can never have enough. And in fact, we will never be fully satisfied in what communion we do have with Jesus Christ. Even in heaven. We'll always want and need fresh supplies of grace from Jesus Christ. And we'll always be beckoned to freely come. We'll always need and desire more of Jesus. Let us therefore come, dear church. Come. Come and drink of the river of life freely. Remember that this is the gospel's call all throughout scripture. Isaiah 55 verse 1 says this. Ho, everyone that thirsteth, come ye to the waters. And he that hath no money, come ye, buy and eat. Yea, come buy wine and milk without price and without money. Just freely. Freely come and get the most precious, life-giving, nourishing, and satisfying water. The water of life. The water of the gospel. Jesus Christ himself. Freely. Notice also it was the gospel that Jesus preached of the kingdom of God. He preached the gospel of the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is synonymous with the kingdom of heaven in Matthew's gospel. So what then is it? What is the kingdom of God? It is the reign, the dominion, the country of God, that God who is in heaven. It is heavenly. It is spiritual and eternal. And someday that kingdom shall be realized as earthly, present, and among us in its fullness in the new heavens and the new earth. Currently, the kingdom of God is spiritual. It's spiritual. It reigns in the hearts of God's elect, namely believers. Christians who believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ through the Holy Spirit. That's where it reigns. His kingdom is not of this world, Jesus says in John 18, 36, or else his servants would have fought to defend his death, prevent his death. It's not of this world, but it is in this world, in the hearts, lives, deeds, and preachings of his people. That's where the kingdom of God is. And that's what it is. It is the gospel. Nothing else but the gospel. God reconciled with sinners through his son, Jesus Christ. God with us, Emmanuel. I will be with you always, Jesus says, even unto the end of the age. It is the gospel, the good news of Christ's kingdom. Why is it good news? Because through the proclamation of this kingdom, which Jesus is now here embarking on, through this preaching of the kingdom news, God, who is king and Lord of all, becomes not only the king over rebellious subjects, as he is by nature to all the unregenerate, but becomes a kingly father to his regenerate children. Those who are saved, redeemed, and brought to him by the power of the Holy Spirit. It is good news because the king's message is not one of wrath and impending doom, but one which beckons sinners to come unto him, to believe upon the Savior, and to be at peace with him. That's why it's good news. And that good news is given to all of you, to myself, and through you, to whoever you bring it to. Amen? That is good news, and we are the ambassadors of that. The kingdom of God is good news because on account of its regenerating nature, Paul can say this, something like this. In Romans 5, 1 and 2, he says, Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom also we have access, access by faith, into this grace wherein we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. That's why the kingdom of God is good news. That's why the kingdom of heaven is good news. This is what Jesus preached, that we actually have access to God. We are given access to God, our king, not only as a king who rules over us and that's it, not only as a king who rules, rules over us, but we may come boldly under the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. 
and that as unto a father sitting upon the throne, and not merely a king. Hebrews 4, 16. You recall in Esther, the book of Esther, that the king, Esther's husband, sat upon the throne, and he had a golden scepter. And when someone was to enter his court, if he extended his scepter, they could approach and speak with him. And if he did not, they had to be cast out. When Esther came in, she waited to see what would happen. The scepter was put forth. And Christ, that scepter, that golden scepter is always extended to us by our Heavenly Father. It says, come, come to the throne of grace that you may find mercy and grace to help in time of need. There's a famous picture of John F. Kennedy. I think of this one often. There's a famous picture of John F. Kennedy. It was during the time of the Bay of Pigs, the Cold War. There's all that stuff going on. He's in some really important press meeting. It's taken from behind in the Oval Office of his desk. He's sitting there at the desk. And there's all these important, powerful people in the room. JFK at that moment is the most powerful man on earth. Reporters, cameras. And the picture's being taken from behind. Under the desk where he's sitting is his son playing in between his legs. We can approach that throne of grace, God's throne, the most powerful being, obviously, in all existence. He is the God of all creation, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, who by a word can utterly melt the heavens and the earth. The one who raises up nations, casts aside armies, destroys, makes, creates, and will destroy the body and hell of the unregenerate. That same king. We can play in the folds of his robes. We can access that throne because for us, as his children, it is a throne of grace. That's the kingdom of God. That's what makes the kingdom of God good news. We are those who are members, or who are those who are members in this kingdom? Who are the members of the kingdom of God? Believers. We, dear church, are the members of the kingdom of God. And this is why it's such good news to us. Now, God does not make us members of the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, begrudgingly. Oh, well, Jesus purchased them. I'm going to have to let them in. No. It is his delight. His delight, his joy, to have his children dwelling in his courts. Jesus tells us in Luke 12, 32, Fear not, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. I'll stand on that. It is the kingdom, not of the dead, but of the living. Those who have been brought from their death and sin to life in Christ. For God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. The inhabitants of the kingdom are those who are not under the reign of sin and Satan and death, but the reign of grace. Romans 5.21 Those who are obedient to the law of love. 1 John 4.7 The members of this kingdom are those who themselves reign as kings and priests. Unto God, Revelation 1.6. Those who are blessed with a peculiar, particular, and special happiness. Matthew 25.34. Jesus tells a parable, he says, Then the king shall say unto them on his right hand, Come ye, blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. These are the kingdom inhabitants, the kingdom citizens. Let us then be sure, dear church, that we are in this kingdom. Let us be sure. Let us be sure that we are in this kingdom, God's kingdom, through the gospel of Jesus Christ, not by any other means. And that we not only be careful to obtain this kingdom as our own, but once we have to be careful to live worthily as citizens 
of this kingdom. Philippians 1, 27. Last point, third, repentance and faith. It's the third topic we're going to look at. Repentance and faith. Verse 15. Jesus came preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God in verse 15 and saying, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. What do we do then? Repent ye and believe the gospel. He begins his preaching this way. Wow. Let's look at each in turn. The time was fulfilled. The time of foreshadowing. The time of foreshadowing. The prophesying of his coming. The time of preparing his way. The time of making his path straight was fulfilled. Complete. It was completed. The previous dispensation, the previous administration of the covenant of grace, the one that was marked by shadows and types of the coming Christ, was completed. It was finished. Finished. Christ was now here. The kingdom of God was now at hand. All the previous prophecies, preachings, proclamations, types, and shadows merely testified to Christ's coming in the interim. But now, now, Jesus Christ was come. Jesus Christ, who was God manifested in the flesh, the Word of God, who was with God and was God, had now been, who had now been made flesh. Jesus, who, being in the form of God, the one who thought it not robbery to be equal with God, who now took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. He had come now. It was no longer shadows. He himself is the kingdom of God. When he came, when he entered into his public ministry and began preaching, repent and believe the gospel, that's when the kingdom of God began. It was now in their midst. It was at hand. The substance and the glory and the essence of the kingdom of God is Jesus. What a premium. What a premium, then, therefore, should we put on Christ, dear church. We, right now, right here, as you sit in this pew, no longer have to wait for the coming time of Jesus. You don't have to wait any longer. We now live as beneficiaries of his coming, of his completed and realized work of salvation and the covenant of redemption, the covenant of grace, all the types and shadows. We are new covenant Christians. In the dispensation, the administration of the covenant of grace that we live in, Christ has come. Christ is at hand. We are fully realized members, citizens of the kingdom of God. The new covenant administration is truly a more glorious administration. The fullness of God's grace being demonstrated before us in all of its true splendor. As as Christians living now, we have this very declaration given to us. Listen carefully. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. Listen to this. God, who at sundry times and in diverse manners spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son, whom he hath appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the worlds, who being the brightness of his glory in the express image of his person, and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. That can be said to us only. Now that Christ has come, that the kingdom of God is at hand, in the gospel of Jesus Christ, and his person, and his work, we no longer await, dear believer. You no longer await but partake. You no longer await, 
the coming Christ. But you partake. Partake, therefore. Partake, therefore. Live worthy of the calling with which you are called. Put off the old man and put on the new man. That man who is created in righteousness and true holiness through the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit. How do we do this? How do we partake? How do we put off? In two ways. Repentance and faith. Repentance and faith. Both in turn. Let's look at first repentance. Repentance. Jesus Christ came preaching repentance, it says in the Gospels. And here he says, repent. He gives a command. It's in the imperative tense. Repent. He calls them to metanoite. What that means, literally in Greek, is a change of mind. It's a change of mind. Repentance starts in the mind, then it moves to the heart, and lastly to the hands and the feet. It is not a requirement for salvation, as many are teaching now. New Calvinists here in this town are teaching that it's a requirement for salvation. You have to repent of all known sins in order to be saved. It's because they cannot read this verse. It's not a requirement for salvation. It is a grace of salvation. A gift of God. The Apostle Paul tells Timothy to patiently instruct those who oppose the gospel in hope that God might what? Quote, give them repentance to the acknowledging of the truth. 2 Timothy 2.25. He doesn't say that so that they'll work up repentance in themselves, repent of their known sins, and be saved. He says that God would give them repentance. Peter was sent by God, as you recall, in Acts, to the Gentile Simon. He got a vision, and he was told to go. He didn't want to go, but he went. And this Gentile, Simon, lived in Joppa. He preached the gospel to Simon and to Simon's family. And they were all given the gift of the Holy Spirit. Afterwards, Peter then goes back to Jerusalem to give a report to the council of elders to tell them what happened. They're kind of weary about it at first, and then he says, But hold on, the Spirit, just as it came upon us at Pentecost came upon these Gentiles. And they're like, then God hath also given the Gentiles repentance unto life. I guess he's granted it to them too. It's Acts eleven eighteen. So, repentance is a fruit which flows out of regeneration. Out of regeneration. And repentance has primarily to do with belief. Not action, first and foremost, but belief. It has primarily to do with the mind. From believing falsely to believing correctly. This correct belief, however, leads to correct action. God saves his people that they should walk in good works, which God hath before ordained. That's Ephesians 2.10. They go hand in hand. We must remember, dear church, remember this. I've said it many times. I'll say it many more times. That correct action does not and cannot lead to correct belief. Just simply getting somebody to be moral is not going to get them to believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ unto salvation. Correct action cannot lead to correct belief, but correct belief does lead to correct action. It does lead to correct action. We must keep this in mind as we study theology, as we hear sermons that are sometimes very theological. When we learn more about who God is and what he has done for us and what he will do for us, we have to keep this in mind. The correct belief leads to correct action. Repentance from sinful beliefs and actions must be rooted in faith. Hence, Jesus not only preached repentance, but he annexed it to belief. That brings us to the next point. Belief. Belief. Jesus' message was that they were to repent and believe the gospel. 
Belief in the gospel results in repentance. As we just said, repentance from false religion can only be unto the true religion because all other religions, all other religious practices are false outside of the one described by the Bible, the one Jesus gives us. It can only be from false religion unto true religion, the gospel. These two things, repentance and faith, are intimately connected and shouldn't be dissected. Shouldn't be dissected asking, so does faith precede repentance or does repentance precede faith? Where does regeneration come in? What about justification? How do all these pieces work together? Which one is first, second, third, and fourth? That's not the right question. Because the answer is neither. Faith doesn't come first, nor does repentance come first. Neither. Both are given as a gift of God in the twinkling of an eye. In that very moment, that split second of regeneration, of salvation. When the Holy Spirit regenerates us from the dead, applies the work of Christ to us, makes us new creatures in Him, and then empowers us to live for Him. It all happens at once. Even after our conversion, even after we become Christian, faith and the truths of the gospel are required by us in order that we may do good works. Believers are zealous to obey God, though they don't do it very well, and often very imperfectly, and as our confession says, fall very, very short into grievous, public, disgusting sins. They can fall very far from grace, but never fall away. But believers are zealous to obey God. Why are they desirous to obey God? Why are we desirous to obey God as Christians? Because we love him. That's what faith and repentance begets. It gives birth to love for God. You want to see if you are saved? Do you love God? You want to see if someone else is saved? Do, you, do they love God? They are no longer at enmity with him. True converts, that is. They are rather his children. They are no longer slaves to sin and the law, but children of liberty, set free to live for God and with God. This is why, dear believer, Paul exhorts Christians to eagerly look, quote, for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify us unto himself as a peculiar people, zealous of good works. Titus 2, 13 and 14. Do you see how all those fit together? They flow in and out of each other. They are one and the same. Believing or knowing that Christ will return, that he who began a good work in us will bring it to completion in that final day, that Jesus gave himself for us to redeem us from sin's stain and sin's power, to make us pure and unblameable before him. Knowing those things, believing those things, will make us zealous for good works. Why? Because good works are obedience to God, and we love God, and we want to obey him. This is our belief. This is our blessed hope. This is our motivation and power to live the Christian life unto God. Knowing that Christ has come, knowing that he has come, the kingdom of God is at hand, that he has done the work of redemption for us, dear church, that he has given us his Holy Spirit, knowing those things, believing those things, causes us to repent from false beliefs to correct beliefs. The Christian life is head, heart, and hands, as the Puritans often said. We must know the truth. We must that. Thus hear the gospel and understand it. Understand its message. But we then must be affected by its truth. In our affections, our emotions, our heart. The truths of the gospel must ravish us and set us on fire for God. And in fact, those truths through regeneration do that regardless of us. Outside of us. In spite of us. It has to happen and it does happen in regeneration. We are set on fire for God. We are ravished by his beauties and his glories. 
This is done without our efforts. For we are new creatures in Christ Jesus. Not dead ones any longer, but alive to God. And it is this that then causes us, by God's power, to live for him. When we understand the guilt that we once had. The guilt we had for our sins. The hell that we deserved. The hatred we had for God. To then understanding the grace that is given to us freely in Christ Jesus. This causes us to live gratefully unto him in obedience and love. Our head believes. Our heart loves. And our hands act. This is what it means to repent and believe. It is not works of repentance that save and justify us, but faith in Christ alone. This faith, a gift of God itself, causes us to live for him. We are saved not only from the guilt of sin, but from the power and influence and obedience to sin. So it's not you're saved, now we can sin so that grace may abound. Paul says God forbid that. And that he was slandered as teaching such. We obey because we're freely given salvation. Therefore, dear believer, repent and believe. Study to show thyself approved. Understand the gospel and believe it. Repent from unbelief to belief in the truth. You, dear believer, have been delivered from sin. Therefore, no longer live in its guilt or its power. Amen. Knowing who you are in Christ and what God has done for you in Him will be all the power that you need to live the Christian life. Amen. But it must be a constant reminding yourself of this truth. We must believe what the Apostle Paul says in Ephesians 1, verses 3-5. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings and heavenly places in Christ, according as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will. Believe that. Believe it. When you believe that, when you believe that God loves you, that he's given himself for you, you will joyously live for him. I venture to say, dear church, that most of our disobedience, most of our sin, stems from our incorrect believing about the truths of the gospel. You believe wrong about God. You believe wrong about what he has done for you in Christ, so you act incorrectly. Sometimes we believe we're still in our sins because we do too much inward looking. Of course we want to confess our sins. Of course we want to cast down our sins. Of course we want to repent of sin and know the sinfulness of sin and do inward looking an introspection to see what sins we need to repent of, what sins we need to forsake. We want to do those things, sure. But when we start to do that too much, we believe we're still in our sins because we see how sinful we are. We lose sight of what Christ has done in us when we look too much to our wicked deeds and not enough to Christ. Listen carefully. Sin's goal, the goal of sin, is to get your eyes off Christ And on yourself. So when you fall back into just looking at your sin. Looking at your sin. Looking at your sin and how wretched and horrid and nasty it is. True. Well done. Now get your eyes off yourself and onto Christ. Your hope. Satan plays off that. Look not at self. Don't look at yourself at all. Whether sinful or good. Irrelevant. Look to Christ. 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 He is all in all. He is God's yes and God's amen to you. You are accepted in the beloved. Believer, you are chosen in Christ. You are redeemed in Christ. And now you stand before God 
in and through Christ as holy, blameless, spotless, perfect, righteous, and lovely. What other motivation do we need to live unto him who loves us so? You are now in Christ, God's child, upon whom his favor rests, as we saw last week in Jesus' baptism at the hands of John the Baptist. Believe this, believe this, and you will truly be passionate about God. Believe this, but truly believe this. Believe isn't just an intellectual assent, but a casting yourself upon him. A casting and resting and trusting in a truth. As a drowning man will reach and snag at anything he can to keep himself buoyant and afloat, so too, drowning in our sin, drowning in this world, you must cling to Christ with all your might, all that you have. A drowning man, they always tell you to hand that drowning man something. A rope, a buoy, a a log, toss it out to him. Do never reach out to a drowning person. Why? Because a drowning person, no matter how weak they are compared to you, will pull you under and you'll both drown. Because in that moment, in their terror, in their anxiety, in their need to live, they are stronger than ten men. And their voracious pining after life will pull you under. That is belief. That's what it means to believe and repent. You cling to Jesus Christ, knowing that you'll be empowered to live the Christian life. Believe this and you will soar to heights of joy and peace, unspeakable and past understanding. Believe this and the accusations and temptations of the devil will fall flat to the ground. I too am a sinner, dear church, and I know how hard it is to approach God. It takes faith to come to him knowing who you are. But when you believe the truth, you're accepted. And you refuse to believe the lie any longer. You repent of your disbelief and you trust Christ. You can come to him boldly, freely, and with joy. Dear believer, you are loved of God. You are a citizen of the kingdom of God. You are God's child. You possess the spirit of adoption, dear believer. Therefore, repent and believe the gospel. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we once again come before Thee. Lord, Thou know, Thou knowest our needs, our wants, our failings. Lord, help us to take Thy hand extended to us in the gospel and live as kingdom citizens. Apply whatever good I said to our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen.